us in our study, that you help to guide us through your word, that you illuminate your word to us so that we can understand it clearly with discernment. Um, We're going into, yet again, a very difficult topic. We'll, We'll call it that. And it would be fantastic if you could help us to understand it at a deeper level, that you would illuminate the different weak points of the alternative views and help us to understand exactly what your word says. So, Lord, I ask that you help us in that. I also ask that you be with the people that aren't present right now and the people that are struggling in our church. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, welcome back. We're going to get started with our study of the rapture of the church. And I think those lights are off, right? No, I still need to turn those off. There we go. Back to the rapture of the church. So just as kind of a recap, we've been studying the sub-subject of this study called eminence. Now, eminence is the basic idea that at any moment, we believe Jesus could come back for his church, that the rapture could take place at any moment. That's the basic building block of the idea of eminence. If you believe in anything other than a pre-tribulational, premillennial rapture, um, you're not going to believe in imminence. You're not going to believe that Jesus could come back at any moment for his church. So consequently, it would be irresponsible of us to teach this position without also looking at the objections people have to this viewpoint. Now, again, just as a reminder, we get to that conclusion by a few different means. One mean is to look at When the church starts, who the church is, we look at when God says the church will no longer be on this earth, and then we look at the conditions for him taking the church off this earth. Now, if you were to do a brief study of a few different scriptures from the New Testament, you'd come to this conclusion that the church is going to be departing from the earth before the tribulational period, but it doesn't say when. What's more is that it's also a signless event, so the Bible never tells us What's going to happen prior to the church getting raptured? So what we come up with is this idea that he could come back at any moment, that there's nothing standing in the way of him returning. And we see that throughout the New Testament with the wording of the way that he describes us watching for the Lord, waiting for the Lord, awaiting the coming of the Lord, waiting for the blessed hope. Whatever the case may be, we get this idea that he could come back at any moment. So that being said, There are a lot of arguments of people that disagree with that viewpoint, usually for theological reasons, but there are are other associated reasons as well, um, where they go to town trying to convince us that this is not a biblical understanding of the text. So we've made it through several of our arguments, and we're focusing on this one that I have in bold right now, which is the basic idea that God isn't going to make Israel go through something the church isn't going to have to go through. And more specifically, as relating to the church, the church isn't going to get scot-free away from the tribulational period if Israel, who is the people of God in the Old Testament, this is the way they word the argument, just so we're clear, is going to have to go through it. So as it stands, um, it's a pretty easy argument to explain. All we have to do is really know who Israel is, what their future is, what God's trying to work through in the tribulational period, know what the church is see if there's any reason for the church to be in the tribulational period, and then come to a conclusion on the basis of what God promised each individual group. But if you don't discern a difference between those two groups, you'll come up with this fancy idea that the church is the new Israel of God, and that Israel is just the church in the Old Testament. 
Now, obviously, it takes a lot of stretching to get to that point. You have to basically read 400 years of Catholic writing in order to get to this idea of replacement theology, where the church is replacing Israel. Another, another word for that is supersessionalism, where they believe that the church is superseding Israel or replacing Israel. It depends on whether or not they're wanting to be obvious about that argument or not. So that being said, in order to answer this question, and this has been several weeks in the making, and I'm hoping that we're going to finish this question today, so I'm, I'm quite optimistic, um, we looked at a few different things. So the first thing we did is we looked at the building blocks of their argument. And in case we're not clear, this is coming from a covenant theology argument. So again, we're not going to go into the nuts and bolts about what covenant theology is. That would take too long. Um, but it tends to be in kind of a reform flavor where they believe the church replaces Israel. They believe that the church is not distinct from Israel. They believe, according to Stephen's speech, that the church actually existed in the Old Testament. Um, again, they don't really, I don't want to make fun of their Greek, um, but it's easy to show why that's not the case, especially if they're using that one verse to try to push that point. So that being said, in order to accomplish our goal to figure this out, we had to look at who Israel is. So we looked at who Israel is in general. We looked at the building blocks of the nation, the fact that they're a covenant nation with God, that God has made unconditional promises to the literal descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, promising them land, seed, and blessing, promising them through the Davidic covenant, an eternal throne with an eternal descendant reigning on it from the earth in Jerusalem. We look at this promise of the land covenant, the conditions that are going to accompany the Jews actually taking possession of their land. Um, they're going to have a renewed heart. They're going to believe in God. They're going to be his people. And we looked at the Mosaic covenant as well to look at the conditions for Israel's heart to actually be in that. And we looked at the differences there between the unconditional covenants, the four unconditional ones, um, which would also include the new covenant, which I didn't mention, and this conditional Mosaic covenant. And we got a good idea of who Israel was. We also looked at the fact that Israel was actually judged for her failure to abide by the conditions of the Mosaic covenant. We looked at the fact that not only did she fail, but she was judged for that failure. She's actually been judged several times over history. The most important portion of this, though, in that judgment is that there is actually yet a still future judgment for Israel where two-thirds of the nation are going to be cut off in the midst of the tribulational period, meaning that two-thirds of the nation will die, uh, which is terrible. But what God is able to bring through that is a single third, which is going to be a remnant, which is going to be a large number. If you look at the history of Israel, I would argue probably the largest amount of Israelites post-Exodus that has ever believed in God at the same time. And it's through that massive amount, that third of the nation, that God's going to bring forward those promises that he made in the Abrahamic, the Davidic, the New Covenant, the Land Covenant in Israel, because he made those promises to ethnic Israel. And we see that in the verses in the Old Testament and the New Testament that talk about her restoration. Now, that's only half the coin. So we know why Israel needs to be in the tribulational period. We've established a firm foundation for why we can expect them to be there and what God is also conspicuously hoping to accomplish through that nation. Now, the question is, what is the church? And are they going to be in the tribulational period? And that's what we've been trying to answer 
through our discussion. So we looked at the history of the church. We looked at the seed truths that God revealed about the church in the upper room discourse, where he gave small, we, we call them seed truths because that's what Lewis Berry Schaefer called them, where he talked about a lightly or vague reference to something specific that was brought out in full fruition in the epistolary literature. Um, so we looked at that and there was a lot of things that were mysteries that the believers in the Old Testament had no conscious knowledge of that Jesus made reference to in the upper room discourse. There were a lot of things. There were also some things that was revealed in the Old Testament. But the point is that these were things that Jesus was revealing earlier about this church that he was about to build. Now, we looked at that. We looked at the fact that even after the church was made, Israel and the church were never synonymous terms. When they talked about Israel, they were not talking about the church. Likewise, Israel, they weren't talking about, uh, it was never, they were never the same term. They were never used interchangeably for the same entity. Those entities were always separate and distinct from one another. Next, we looked at the fact that the church was distinctively new. We looked at the fact that the, the church was not in the Old Testament at all. There was no reference to the church. Not a single one. I challenge anyone to find one. We also looked at the fact that the church was a new man that Christ was building, that this was a new entity. It's called a mystery in the New Testament. We spent a lot of time on that because mystery, based in its essential form, means that it's something that God had always planned on, never before revealed, but was now revealing for a purpose. So what that means is the church is not plan B, that the church isn't some afterthought God had. Oh, I guess Israel didn't really work out, so... I might as well start a church. God didn't do that. He always planned on that in lieu of the fact in his omniscience, he knew that Israel would reject him. That doesn't deny the validity of his offer when he offered the king on the king's terms to start the kingdom with Israel in the first century. Even though they denied that, it didn't negate the validity of that offer. Um, next, we actually look at the structure of the church. We, and we were, this is a basic synopsis. I mean, this isn't an in-depth study of the church. We actually went into a lot more detail when we studied Ephesians, but we get this idea that Christ is the head, the members, the church members are the body. Each part of the body has an individual parts. God gave each person a different gift and each person has a specific role to play in the church. And the usage of that gift both brings glory to God and glory to his purpose in the church. We looked at those things. And where we left off last week was in this very brief section where we talked about the promises that the church has been given about the future. Now, this is the critical part to our study because this actually gives us an idea of what we have to look forward to. Now, this is quite important, and we're going to notice this a little bit more in detail later, but this is incredibly different from the promises of the future we looked at per Israel that Israel has been given. What you'll notice is that, is that it doesn't say two-thirds of the church will be cut off and a third will be bought through the tribulational period. Um, although there are other Old Testament prophecies about Israel that are um, recapitulated in, in the New Testament, you're not going to see that here. And the reason for that is because this church, this body of believers, is distinct from Israel. And that's what we're going to be trying to hammer out today. So we're going to finish our section uh, on this today and look at the distinctions between the church and Israel. That's what I'm hoping to accomplish today. So that being said, we looked at the fact that the church is promised an exemption from divine wrath. We did that by looking at the book of Revelation. We looked at 1 Thessalonians chapters 1 and 5. 
Um, and we got this excellent idea that the church is looking for Jesus Christ. The church is not looking for the Antichrist. He's not looking for the tribulational period. We're looking towards that. I misspoke last week when I said that 1 Corinthians was written to unbelievers. I didn't even realize it until this morning when I was trying to figure out where we left off. And I was like, oh, oops, that, that was a misspoke. Um, 1 Corinthians was written to carnal believers in the hopes that through that letter, which was actually successful if you read 2 Corinthians, that Paul would be able to bring them back into fellowship with God. And he did that by highlighting different things that they were doing, different sins that they were committing in the hopes, again, that they would revoke those things, that they would essentially excommunicate those who were pushing false doctrines and false behavioral antics in the church. And we actually see that a lot of those things got resolved in 2 Corinthians. So that being said, that was what 1 Corinthians were, was about. But what we were looking at, having looked at the fact that the church is actually given a, an exemption from divine wrath, that the church is promised trials and persecutions in this life. Because again, this life is the worst that it will ever be for the church. Um, it's the exact opposite for an unbeliever. This is as good as it gets for an unbeliever. Um, but what's interesting is that the church is also promised, even though we're saved, even though we're blood-bought, even though we're looking towards the future with heaven, it's not just a... Uh, Believe in Jesus Christ so you can get your get-out-of-jail-free card and go to heaven and not really have any worries. Christ, through the writing of the apostles, also talks about this idea of the Bema Seat Judgment, which also tells us that there's a way that we're supposed to live our life and that how we as Christians, <coughs> excuse me, living in the body of Christ, how we choose to live our lives actually has an impact on our level of blessing and authority in the millennial kingdom on this earth later on. So we're given this future um, because again, it's funny. If you ever, if you ever talk with, I would say the average person that goes to any church in the U S and you talk about the future, all they're thinking about is heaven, which I'm not saying is wrong, but they have this entire perspective about the millennial kingdom. That's absent. Usually that's a result of reformed theology, which just, overblows this idea that heaven's the only thing we have to look forward to. Heaven is certainly something to look forward to. I'm looking forward to it. I, I, I would love to have to not finish this lesson and just go right to heaven. I'd love to be raptured right now. Um, it would fix every single problem in my life to a T. Super easy. So that being said, that's not all I have to look forward to as a Christian. Because as we were looking at last week, there are going to be things we do in the power of the Spirit, in the power of God. There are going to be things we do out of the flesh. And the difference is that things, we, we saw this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that we do through God's power for his glory out of an abundance of the Holy Spirit working in our lives will be credited to us as blessing. And the things we do out of the flesh are going to be burnt up. Um, so, and we, we studied these in a lot more depth. So we're not going to go into huge detail about these, but you can look at the bottom of the screen in that last bullet point that there are several different crowns, several different blessings that will be under consideration at the Bema Seat Judgment that we have under consideration. So that answers the question, um, should we just sin more and let grace abound? No, because there's a consequence for that. There are immediate consequences of lack of fellowship with the Lord, but there are also eternal consequences in the fact that we 
will miss out on that blessing. If you spent the next three trillion years living your life in a lack of blessing state because of that little short 80-year window, you didn't live according to God's word, I, I would consider that to be a tragedy. Um, but we don't have the eternal perspective to realize that's a problem. So in any case, um, I would encourage you guys, we're not going to go into detail on the Bema seat because we already did that. Um, but if you would like to, the verses are on the bottom of the screen. If you're on the faith like that, and I ever change a slide and you want to go back, you do have the freedom to be able to look at the slides. So if you want to look at notes later, you're welcome to do that. What we're going to focus on today is the differences between Israel and the church. And these are summaries, and some of these are combined together because um, years and years, decades and decades ago, Lewis Berry Schaefer came up with 24 distinctions between the church and Israel. And obviously, with that being so long ago, people have only added to that number. So I have cherry-picked what I think are the most significant uh, differences between the church and Israel. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. So if we could turn to chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians, that, that's where we're actually going to start now that we've spent 20 minutes uh, reviewing what we did last week. <laughs> so again, that's Ephesians chapter 5. So it says in Ephesians chapter five, we're going to be starting in verse 22. It says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the church, or I'm sorry, the wife as Christ is also the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body, just, but just, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife as to himself and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Because ultimately we were given this um, comparison between the marital relation between a husband and wife, that relationship, that fellowship to Christ and the church. So the church is the bride of Christ and Christ is the groom. Drastically different from Israel. We are going to flip back and forth between the Old and the New Testament a lot. So I would prepare for that. We're going to go to Isaiah chapter 54 next. So that being said, in Isaiah chapter 54, we're going to be looking at verse 5, where it says that for your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For God has called you like a wife, forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your Lord. Because again, and this is something that 
you could miss if you were just reading very quickly through it. But Israel was the wife of Jehovah, where the church is the bride of Christ. We're not married to Christ. We're the bride. Now, people over-literalize that because you'll notice, even in that following verse, it says, for the Lord has called you like a wife. Because again, God's not literally married to the church. It is an analogy to show us the relationship aspect of it. Um, to explain God's objections when Israel was adulterous as a nation, when they were worshiping false gods. Um, so there's a difference there between the church and Israel just right off the bat, because we have a different relation, a different analogous relationship to God than the, um, than Israel did. That being said, we, we spent a little bit of time on this last time, but this is quite important. So if you could turn back to the book of Matthew chapter 16, I'm just going to make a point that we've made several times in the last few weeks. It says in Matthew 16, if you look at verse 18, that I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I have already made my church in Israel. No, it doesn't say that. It says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So God is talking in Matthew about this church that he's going to build. Not about, so this is a new entity that Jesus is already alluding to the fact that he is going to be building quite distinct from Israel. Now we, we looked a little bit in the past to see when we looked at where the church started, we know that the church started in Acts chapter two at the giving of the Holy spirit. We know that because Jesus promised during his ministry and the upper room discourse that he would be sending a helper and that he would be sending the spirit and that he would actually be in the believer, not just with the believer. And what's more is that Jesus actually said that they were going to be better off than the people around him who had him physically there with them. So again, it's, it's a tremendous thing that he was promising. And we know in Acts chapter 11, they, uh, because it doesn't say the church started in Acts chapter two. So go there in your Bible because the chapter divisions didn't even exist when Acts was written. But it says in Acts chapter 11, it roots the beginning point of the church to when they were given the Holy Spirit. And that happened in Acts chapter 2. It's a, kind of a workaround way of getting there, but there is no other explanation for when the church started. If you deny that fact, and some dispensationalists even do that, they actually root the beginning of the church to the apostles in the book of Matthew. Um. And they're, they're very vocal about it on YouTube, but they don't have a verse that demonstrates that. Um, again, we have them saying that is when the beginning was in Acts chapter 11. So we're, we're not trying to make anything up. We're just trying to regurgitate what the Bible says on that. Um, but that being said, God began his program with Israel, not when the church started at the giving of the Holy Spirit, but rather he, far before that in when did he start it? I, I'm kind of cheating because it's right on the screen. But in Genesis, we're going to be going to chapter 12. So if you could turn your Bibles there. It says in Genesis chapter 12, we're just going to read the first three verses. Where it says, the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And you, so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the ones who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And he promises quite a, quite a few more things there. 
But what's interesting is that if you read through uh, Genesis chapter 13, 15, and 17, you'll come to this idea that God is beginning a new creation through this nation, a new nation, separate from all the other nations. He makes several promises to them. Those are just some of the promises. It says in Genesis 15, uh, four through six, it says, then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, Abram, saying, this man will not be your heir, but the one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look towards the heavens and count the stars if you were able to count them. And he said to him, so your descendants shall be. And then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So in essence, if you follow that, you look into all the way to Genesis 22 and you look at the promises that were given to him and his descendants, you come to the conclusion that this nation was started through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Very, very, very different than Acts chapter 2. I mean, these are, these are just flying off the page because they're so obvious. But there are people that disagree with this. So we're going to continue just to make the point. And this is not the last time uh, somebody will probably teach this. They'll probably use better slides than the ones that I made. But that's, this isn't the last time we're going to talk about this because this issue keeps coming up in churches. There are a lot of people that just don't understand this. Um, and that's not necessarily their fault. A lot of people have been mistaught about this if you look in churches. But it's worth teaching for us um, because at a minimum, it's a good reminder. It's a good reminder that God has started two distinct entities with two distinct roads that go to a very similar destination in the kingdom. But their distinctions don't get lost just because they're ending up at the same place. Um, that's like three logical fallacies in one. So that being said, we'll look at Psalm 147 next. Again, looking at the essence of who Israel is. So in Psalm 147, if we look at verse 20, it says, he has not, well, actually start with 18. It says, <coughs> he sends forth his word and melts them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters to flow. He declares his words to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel, and he has not dealt thus with any nation. And for his ordinances, they have not known them, praise the Lord. Because again, Israel was a nation. It was a nation with laws. See the Mosaic Covenant. Um, it had specific ordinances. It had ways that it did taxes. Um, it had everything that would accompany the beginning of an actual nation. Now we're going to be looking at the book of Romans, if you could turn there. I told you we were going to flip-flop a lot. So Romans, we're actually going to be looking at um, chapter 10. If I can even get there. <laughs> so, okay. So Romans chapter 10, we're going to be just looking at verse 19. 
where it says that, but I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses said, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, will I anger you? And we're going to be looking at Galatians next, I believe. Yeah, Galatians chapter 3. Very easy to miss. It's very small book. So in any case, uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, it says that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither, neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So that begets the question, did Israel have that similar lack of distinction? It didn't. Because Israel was made up of ethnic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they had a different classification distinct from that core of Israelites for people who wanted to come in who were not an Israelite. That's called a proselyte. We looked at that. The church is drastically different because the church is made up of people from all nations, not from a specific nation. Um, Because it doesn't matter what nation you are, what race you are, you can be a member of the church through faith in Jesus Christ, through trusting in him and his work on the cross. Because again, that's what we're trying to hammer out here. We're trying to look at just the distinctions. Now, if we had no more than one of these distinctions, could we make an argument that Israel and the church are the same? So far, no. We can't make that distinction because the, or we can't pretend that they're the same because the Bible holds them distinct even in one point we would still have to hold it distinct because that's what the Bible says. But ultimately, we're given, just to look into the future a little bit, we're given quite a few distinctions between the church and Israel. And at some point, we'll probably leave a lot of the study to you folks, but we're going to go through as many of these as we can. Um, just note, as we're going through this, that there are many distinctions between the church and Israel. More than I put on these two slides. I'm not an expert on this subject, but there's a lot of writing that would be talking about these particular issues. Now, that being said, we're just going to read a few of the headlines as we move forward. I want to try to finish this today. So the first one is that Christ was the builder and the foundation of the church. We looked at this the last couple weeks. He was not only the one who was announcing the coming of the church, but he was also the one who was claiming to be the one to build it. So this is a creation from Christ that at the point where Christ was on the earth did not exist. Uh, Contradistinction, you can look at Israel because Christ was actually born of Israel. Christ was the promised Messiah given to Israel. Christ was not, again, you could, you could loosen that up a little bit, but We'll read that one really quick in Revelation 12, um, which is actually a very good summary. It's the most uh, symbolic book of the most, it's the most symbolic chapter of the most symbolic book in the entire Bible. But you guys aren't, none of us are biblical scholars, but I think we can pretty much get what's being talked about in the first five verses. It says a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child and she cried out being in labor and pain to give birth. 
And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God into his throne. And then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared for, by God so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Again, Israel is the one who gave birth to the child, the Christ, the God-man, the Messiah, even though through things like, I don't know, Herod uh, tried to snuff him out. He prevailed in any case. So Christ was born of Israelite descent, but the church was not. The church was actually born by the building of Christ. So we have a distinction there. Again, very different. So Christ also promises to rescue the church from the tribulational period. This is one of those promises he gives in the upper room discourse in chapter 14 of the gospel of John, where he promises that not only is he going to be going to the father's house, but he's going there to prepare a place for them so that he can come again and take them to himself. That's a promise that he made to the church. Um, he also makes a church a promise to Israel, but he doesn't promise to take them to the father's house. We actually looked at this in detail and we're going to look at it again very briefly. He promises to rescue Israel at the end of the tribulational period. If you could turn to Matthew 23, um, right before he talks in Matthew 24, it's towards the end of the chapter. After he took the, I think I said this last time, after he took the Jewish leadership through a cheese grater all throughout chapter 23, he ends with this distinct note. It's, it's very touching, actually, compared to what he was just saying to the, to the Pharisees. But he says in verse 37 of chapter 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, for I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So again, he promises that they will see him again at the end of the tribulational period. We know this because if we read a little bit farther in Matthew 24, ultimately that is when he rescues the nation at the very end, where if he stayed away for another year, there would be no more life on the earth. Like all of these promises that he gives to people, that's his promise of the future for Israel. Very different than what he promises for the church where he promises to take him to the father's house. If you look at, and we're going to talk about this in depth when we get into post-tribulational rapturism, but if his promise is just to rapture the church and take him back down to the earth to do Armageddon and then live in the kingdom, if that's the goal, or take us back to heaven, depending on which flavor of post-tribulationalism you're looking at. If that's his promise, that doesn't at all coordinate with this idea of going back to the father's house or for the fact that his coming is so that he can go take us to the father's house where he had a place prepared for us. Um, again, it's drastically different. And that's what I'm trying to show. I'm trying to show kind of, or I'm trying to illuminate just how, I don't want to say silly because people do base their lives on these promises and that's a tragedy. It's not silly. 
Um, but just how obvious these things seem to be when you look at them in detail. They are incompatible. They cannot be talking about the same event. And what's more is that the audience of each of these discussions is distinct. Who is he talking to in Matthew 23? He's talking to national Israel. That's who he's interacting with. We see that through the Jewishness of the terms used in Matthew 24 and the rebuke in Matthew 23. That's what he's giving them. He's talking to national Israel, not just individual believers who are eventually going to make up the church. That's not what he's doing. Um, so that being said, the next point is that the church is a third party beneficiary to the blessings of the new covenant. Very different from Israel who was given the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. So again, and we will actually, because we're a little bit closer to Romans, just look at the beginning of Romans chapter nine. But what I'm trying to demonstrate is this is, this is both uh, proclaimed in the Old Testament, given proper foundation, and then also not negated in the New Testament. Because again, it sounds obvious, but God's not going to promise something as the God of the universe, the God who cannot lie, and then revoke it or amend it um, in the future. Again, it's not like God's having a conversation with the Israelites and being like, well, can we amend this agreement that I made to you? So the way we can do this, you get, this didn't really work out. He doesn't say that at all. But what he does say in Romans chapter 9 is, starting in verse 1, I'm telling the truth in Christ. This is Paul speaking. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, and the givings of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. These are things that belong to Israel. And that is abundantly clear. Specifically relating to the new covenant. Again, that's given to Israel. The fulfillment of that is given actually at, during and at the end of the tribulational period going into the kingdom. Because that's where they see the full fruition of the new covenant the terms being spoken of in Jeremiah chapter 31. And we'll look at Jeremiah 31 because there's no way we're going to finish today. <laughs> um, as much as I, as much as I wanted to, I'm not tired of this. There's just, there's a lot to get to. And these points take a while to get through. Um, but thoroughness is a good thing as it pertains to this particular subject. And the reason for that is because I think in a lot of ways, we assume a level of knowledge on behalf of the people we disagree with. And I found that to be a bad idea. Because again, you could say the church and Israel are distinct, but if they've never had proper teaching about who Israel is and the promises made to her, those are just empty words that we're saying we, that have no basis what we need to be able to do is we need to be able to, on an educated basis, take someone through the Old Testament, looking at Genesis 12, 13, 15, 17, 22, moving forward, at looking at the promises in First, Second Samuel, First Chronicles, given to Israel in particular, looking at the fact that they're not revoked. And we need to be able to present that information in a way that people can understand. Um, because like I said, otherwise it's just 
us saying we're going to be raptured and them saying we're not going to be raptured and then us just going our separate ways, um, which that might be how that plays out. It's, it's played out that way for me in a few times because some people just don't want to hear the information. People don't like hearing that they're wrong. People also don't like hearing that what they believe for 40 years has been a lie. It doesn't go very far in a conversation and there's not a really good way to say you've believed a lie for 40 years. Now, if somebody came up to me and said, hey, Jesus wasn't the Messiah, you believed a lie for the last 26 years, I'd probably laugh at them because I've studied who he is, the promises given to him, the archaeological evidence supporting what happened in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. I've looked at the apologetics, and I know that's just a silly argument, but there are a lot of Christians who haven't, which is why that the main and we're going to finish on Jeremiah 31, which is why the main people that Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons try to convert are new Christians. That's their main culprit. Like they will, it's funny because if you ever go outside of, and I'm, I don't participate in these very often or ever, um, but if you go outside an evangelism tent in the South, you're going to see a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons out there because that, those are the prime people for them to snatch up people that believe in God, believe in the Bible and know nothing about either of them. So that being said, I'm not saying the people that believe in a post-tribulational rapture are synonymous with that group, but we have to keep in mind that there are pockets of knowledge they don't have. So Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31, it says, behold, the days are coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them out of the, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Again, that's not just talking about your conscience, knowing the difference between right and wrong. They, we've had that since the fall, prior to the fall. Um, although we know what sin is better because of the fall. It says in verse 34, they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. Who's they? They is these people he's making the covenant with, these descendants of Israel and Judah. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of the hosts is his name. If this fixed order, what fixed order? The sun, which gives light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night. If this fixed order ever departs from me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me forever. Well, that's pretty fantastic. He's basically promising that he's going to fulfill this promise he's making, not to the church who ends up being a third party beneficiary of this covenant. Like we get blessings because of Israel's covenant with God in the new covenant, um, which became ratified at the blood of Jesus. Now that being said, thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured, which we've proven they cannot be, 
um, with all our billions of dollars of technology. And the foundations of the earth searched out below. Can't do that either. Again, with all of our technology. Then I will also cast all of the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares the Lord. What he's saying is that it is impossible for God to cast off the offspring of Israel. It's so clear. It's not, it's not talking about the spiritual children of Israel. It's not talking about the new Israel as people misquote Galatians 6.16 reading out of an NIV. It's talking specifically about the literal descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, and I've had people come up to me and give me arguments about the uh, descendancy of the Israelites, about how there can't be any real Israelites anymore. God knows who the Israelites is, are. He's the one who made them. He's the one who promised these things to him. And he's saying that if I can look out my window and see the sun or the moon or the stars or the earth in its place without erupting, I can know that he's going to bring forth those promises with Israel. So again, I have to treat them as a distinct entity that God is going to bring these promises through. I cannot do anything apart from leaving them and believing they're going to exist. I, I'm, I don't have the freedom to say that the church replaced Israel. I can't do that because God says I can't. God says that he will not replace Israel. God says that these people are going to get the things he's promising to them. So ultimately, I, we're going to go through the rest of these next week. And we're going to finalize this subject. I promises, promises, promises. Um, but at the end of the day, at a bare minimum, we have to look at this promise and know that they are going to be a distinct entity. Even if you argue the church get brought, got brought into Israel, the people who are arguing that also argue that Israel is departed. And when they quote the new covenant, they leave out this big section at the end of it. They look at the parts that are somewhat synonymous with what we have in Christ as part of the church, but they ignore verse 35 through 40. And they leave that out when they're teaching their congregation. And we can be as peaceful about it as we want to. We can. Um, it's easy to get fired up about this because what they're saying is God is a liar. They're lying to the people in their congregations. They're ignoring the full counsel of God's word. And they're saying the church is the new Israel. God divorced Israel. She has no prophetic significance even though God said she will always be a nation before me. And he brought revived a nation after 1900 years to be living in her homeland with her capital in preparation for the promises where God says the tribulation cannot happen until she's a nation in the land. We look at that in a dozen different places in the old Testament. So we're going to look at this a little bit more next week, but just keep in mind, like as we're looking at these distinctions, we can't emphasize enough the future for Israel, because God is bringing specific things through them. Not because we think Israel deserves to be used in that way. Um, our prefer our theological and eschatological preferences aren't taken in into consideration by God when he makes promises to nations or people, but they're going to hold a, a role in that because uh, it will bring glory to God. Because so far, everything good that's happening to Israel has been not because of them. It's been because of what God promised. So we're going to be looking at that stuff a lot more next week or the next week if my, my progress that I seem to be able to make ends up happening again. But um, just keep those things in mind because it, it's significant, both prophetically and to us right now, because it highlights our role in the church on the earth right now. So let's go to the Lord in prayer before I get in trouble for going too late. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the promises that you've made to us, the church, the promises of uh, exemption from divine wrath, where we will not have to go through the tribulational period, 
where we will be able to watch what's happening during the tribulational period for your glory in heaven during that time period. We also thank you for the rights we've been given in Christ, the fact that we have the Holy Spirit in us, that we're permanently indwelt, that you guide us, that you uh, convict us when we're in sin and that you try to restore fellowship with us, that you're always wanting to be in fellowship with us. These are wonderful things that we have in you as part of your church. Now, Lord, I ask that you empower us for godly living so that we can do the deeds that you have planned for us, um, that you predetermined that we would be eligible to do should we obey them. So, Lord, I ask that you help us to do that. I ask that you be with us in the service to come. In Jesus' name, amen.